Does America have a student debt crisis? How big is the national burden of a student debt? Currently, it's $1.73 trillion. Trillion as in T as in Tom? Trillion. T as in Tom. Trillion. Wow. Did you know that our country's student loan program was not designed as a guarantee that colleges and universities will be supported or that students will receive higher education? No, not at all. Rather, it was designed as a guarantee to the banks that the bankers will be repaid if they extend the loans that the students need and colleges and universities depend on to stay open. This may seem a distinction without a difference, but as Professor Shermer explains in this episode, the consequences of devising the student loan program this way as a financial product have been profound and are now dire. Hey there, news peelers. Today is January 14, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peel into History Behind News. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel Dot News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey, into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Early in December, I came across an article in the Wall Street Journal that'll sum up as such. Members of Congress are well aware that the Federal Student Loan Program has saddled millions of American families with debt, but they aren't exactly rushing to fix the problem. Later that month, on December 22nd, President Biden extended the pause on the repayment of federal student loans by an additional 90 days through May 1st. The financial strain of the Omicron variant was the stated reason for this extension. This moratorium, by the way, had started almost two years earlier by President Trump. And according to the New York Times, the extension impacts 41 million borrowers, 27 million of which have not been making their payments since early 2020. And there's more. A December 31st article in the Wall Street Journal was published with the following headline, Why Student Debt Keeps Growing Even When Borrowers Keep Paying. One sobering explanation offered by the article is that most student debt payments don't even cover the loan's interest, hence the debt keeps on accumulating. There are many other articles and reports about student debt that suggest something is amiss. There are too many for me to identify here. I'll just provide a couple of examples. Going back to November of last year, there were a series of reports about how the University of Southern California, USC, 
hired a for-profit company to attract students for its online social work master's program. The students of this program, who would presumably become social workers, not exactly a high-paying profession, have to wrestle with six-figure student debt after graduation. And just this week, I came across a report about how some of our nation's top universities, including Yale and Georgetown, allegedly colluded to limit student debt financial aid and are now being sued in federal court. To better understand how we got here, how America's student debt burden is now labeled as a crisis, I spoke with Ms. Elizabeth T. Shermer, an associate professor in the Department of History at Loyola University, Chicago. Professor Shermer has written extensively on 20th century U.S. political and urban history. Her most recent book, which we'll discuss in this episode, is titled Indentured Students, How Government-Guaranteed Loans Left Generations Drowning in College Debt. To learn more about Professor Shermer and her work, visit her academic homepage, the link for which, as well as links for her book, are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Sherman and I peel the history behind this news. The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Sherman, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. I'm so glad to be here. It's my pleasure to have you here. Um, although student debt doesn't dominate the news, it sure has covered a lot more in the news now than it was in the past. I mean, for example, in recent elections. Why is that? Why now? I think actually it's it's interesting because there certainly were students complaining, borrowers complaining, parents issuing concern. A lot of it, though, was to their elected representatives. A lot of it was done in private. And there's an interesting thing about historians. You mean was, Americans. what time period are you referring to? How far back? Oh, so from the start. So from, I mean, my, uh, from you, I mean, since we have the student loan programs, there were people writing into their elected representatives. Period. Oh, we'll stop. Wow. Like, so, so, so it's the 1950s. That this is uh, this is this is hard. I can't. And actually, even before the coming of the loan programs, uh, the first federal loan program is in 57. There were people talking about the challenge and the pain of trying to uh, afford higher education in the United States. But there really starts to be a shift in being much more outspoken about this in the 1990s, but particularly really around the Great Recession. And this is where I um, give a lot of credit to the Occupy movement. The Occupy movement, one of the big conversations in those encampments was actually not just medical debt, but also student debt. And some really, I think that people, um, because it was hard to uh, understand the nature of how Occupy was organized and its many different offshoots, 
but actually you can trace it back to there, the continued continued efforts that eight years later, Bernie Sanders would make that a main part of his agenda, canceling student debt and reimagining how higher education was paid for. And this is one of, there's been sustained pressure and more conversation about it. People publicly talking about this extraordinary burden for a basic public good, not just a private need, but a basic public good. It is good to have um, a, a more highly educated population. One uh, question that comes up all the time, you know, I hear it in, in, in conversations with friends, uh, all of whom have gone to college uh, pretty much. They say, well, why can't they just pay it? Why can't, don't they have good paying jobs? Has that changed? Well, we do have, we have had, um, I hope that question doesn't come out insensitive. I'm just trying to figure it out. No, 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 not at all. And so, I mean, so the data, the data that we have, and the thing I think is really challenging about student debt data is they didn't bother starting to disaggregate student debt from other forms of household debt until the early 2000s. So we have not actually had so many social scientists are so focused and policymakers are focused on the data, but the actual data on student debt, we didn't get in really any real terms really until after 2008. So it's challenging to start talking about this stuff, but it, you can see the private pain um, that we have in terms of people talking to their electoral representatives, sending in emails, but or excuse me, sending in, in letters. But in terms of this question about it is still true from the data that we have, you are more likely to do better over the course of your lifetime if you have a college degree. That is absolutely true, but the quality of American jobs, as we you asked me this question in the in the in the moment we're talking about the Great Resignation, where because of the quality yeah. of jobs, people are dropping off. I also want to emphasize something too. It is flat out true that women, particularly women of color, take take longer to pay back their debt, and because interest accrues. Um, they will end up owing more over time for the same degrees. And oftentimes women need to drop out of the labor force, irrespective of the fact that women are still paid pennies on the dollar for, same, for the same jobs because of the need to provide care. And this is the great thing that the great um, that COVID has forced us to acknowledge what has always been happening. So this is a very serious issue about why this debt is being carried much longer than the 10 years that these loans are supposed to be paid back in. So the loans generally historically speaking the intention was for them to last to be carried for 10 years by Just the students years, exactly yeah <laughs> that's not the case i can tell you i know i know so um, exactly what, what you described professor Shermer, was was really just had a lot packed in it i want to go back a little bit uh first to my original question what has changed one of the things that you identified is that the Great Recession of 2008 was sort of an awakening moment in which a lot of students brought this forward as, look, this is an issue. So is, is, is my sort of re-paraphrasing uh, uh, of what you said correct? Yes, and that they, they there had been private conversations about it. Actually, it's, it's funny. I always hate being told that student debt wasn't a burden of, um, for earlier generations, but there's actually a friend of mine showed me her personal ad. It's actually how she met her husband, where she was talking. Her personal what? Her about, personal ad? 
her personal ad to yeah in a print personal ad in uh-huh, a newspaper uh-huh. to, and she actually found her husband from it where she's like the thing i hate most in life is student loans and i was like well see there you go <laughs> it's actually this topic of conversation it's a burden of it um and it is actually it's it's really interesting when you talk to people who have paid off their loans um before you know my my generation where the cost of education had increased so much that you couldn't just borrow your way through school or work your way through school you had to do both um and so it's it's really important but i also want to sort of connect it to we have have had historic problems with um, a challenge for women and people of color to get well-paying jobs to be to be paid equally to pay back these these loans these these loans pay, to pay back for the educations that were supposed to open up the gateway to equal opportunities for employment, but also recognizing the structural things that so many women are having to leave the labor force, and when they leave the labor force, the interest on those loans is still accruing. And there's the average interest rate on those loans. It so the thing is, it's challenging about this is on uh, is that they change over time, and there's a difference between the federal loans and the private loans. The federal Mm -hmm. loans are the ones that are now directly from the federal government. Originally, they were guaranteed by the government; they were Mm -hmm. offered by private banks. But those federal loans range, depending on the kind of loan, anywhere from three point seven three percent to six point two eight percent. But it's fluctuated over time because Congress can and has changed it. But then this entire another world of private loans it's harder to get good data about how much the interest rate is being charged on that. But for example, um, if I had to, I, I talk about it at the, at the end of the book, how this book came about is all of a sudden I was, I was facing having to provide elder care for my father. If I had needed to drop out of the labor force, I had a loan um, that was at 6.28%. That interest would have kept accruing even though I had needed to drop out of the labor force and pause payments. Wait, you pause payment, but the interest keeps on accruing? Exactly. That's a bum deal. That really is. Isn't it? Yeah, you didn't know that? Well, that's the thing that that. was... that's. That's the thing that's really remarkable about this, the current um, moratorium on f- some federal student loans. It's not all of them. So the private loans are excluded, but some federal student loans, the majority of them have had an interest-free pause. This is the first time that we've had an interest-free pause because so often when folks have applied for a pause in their loan repayments for whatever reason, um, uh, that they have, they have not been able to work to pay off their loans, the interest has continued to accrue. So it is a bum deal. Uh, and in and, and the private sector, as you just alluded to, it's, it's probably much different. Maybe the accrual continues. Maybe uh, you're not yeah. even able. Oh, no, Are absolutely. You... The po- Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, please. No, we've had some wonderful testimony. I shouldn't say wonderful, some very powerful testimonials from folks who have been continuing to have to pay off the student loans that are held privately or the ones that remain on um, that are remain from that um, the original guaranteed student loan program that didn't fall under um, the direct loans covered under the moratorium. I have another question that I bet there's no good data for because it's so varied. Uh, What's the average amount? owed by students now by a college graduate they'll generally leave with just under thirty thousand dollars um uh owed no there is an answer to that okay no no but that's that's that is just but this is that is just for people who actually manage to finish their degrees 
right? And so this is the challenge. And then it becomes very challenging because this is private IRS data, um, things like that, in terms of understanding what the average is with an individual borrower. When you say degrees, is that undergrad or a grad? Undergrad. Level? It's undergrad. It's just undergrad. undergrad. It is undergrad. just undergrad. Yep. And and I'm sure for a graduate student, this 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 debt just becomes mounting. Well, and in, and in my case, I in my case, I was very lucky to have um, basically a, a full ride. I had to take out um, I had to take out two loans in graduate school, um, and it's just that my computer died in the middle of the semester, which is challenge or middle. I was in the quarter system, so you, you as a graduate student, you don't have much money. Yeah. But my undergraduate loans were paused, but the interest kept accruing, and so the amount that but I couldn't as a graduate student afford to pay because I was going to graduate school in California, which you might've heard since you're from there has a very yeah. high cost of living It does <laughs> to it try does. and pay that off <laughs> on a graduate student's salary or to keep up with those payments. I could barely afford the place I was living, um, much less the food on the table. I'm still um, stressing so this, about your computer that broke down. What happened to the computer? I got, I, I borrowed, I got, I got, I got, I got the loan and I, I bought a new computer. Um, just, Good. it was an old computer from undergrad. Um, and so I, I, I got a new one. How big is the national burden of a student debt? Currently it's $1.73 trillion. Trillion as in T as in Tom? Trillion. T as in Tom. Trillion. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, why don't we take a short break and then talk about indentured students, your latest book. In fact, it just, it came out in August, right? Yes, it did. It sure did. Wonderful. We'll be right back. Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Indentured students. Professor Shermer, indentured is a pretty strong word. What is this book about? This book is actually, it's about, it's everyone with a history of the student loan crisis. What they wanted was a story of big, bad bankers. And what is unexpected in this book is the bankers originally fought the federal student loan program. So this is actually a story about the fights within Washington about whether or not they were going to give students loans or whether they were going to provide the direct funding that would have made at least public higher education tuition free. And this is a story of big bad politicians doing the wrong things and choosing to prioritize offering a financial product, a student loan, as opposed to the kind of direct investment in a basic need like colleges and universities that this country needs, not just to educate people, but to provide the research that is needed for example, for the COVID vaccines. And that's what this book is fundamentally about. It's about the political fights that led to this crisis. So we've had the tuition-free conversation going way back. This is- uh, Oh yeah. Senator Absolutely. Sanders didn't, didn't invent it. How far no, back- No, he did not. <laughs> how far back does that conversation well, go? 
technically they were actually in you being in California, the university of California, actually it still technically calls itself tuition free. Cause they talk about student fees instead of tuition. No, um, they're not tuition free. I have plenty of friends. Just I know exactly. No, 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 no. I, as someone who was in the <laughs> university of California TA union, we had to yeah. be very specific that we were getting, we were talking about student fees because it remains quote unquote tuition free, but you and I both know that's just a, a they battle. They can call it whatever they want. It's expensive. Exactly. They <laughs> yeah. can. They, it's yeah. So, but, but no, but actually the University of California, like a handful of other state research universities were, and California in particular was genuinely um, tuition or fee free, depending on how you want to talk about it. Um, and so this idea actually that this was a public good, a public need, that this is what it would serve has actually gone um, much longer back. But the question is like, how do you pay for it? How do you pay for this what is now being recognized in infrastructure as infrastructure that not just educates people but provides the research and workforce training and in some cases as well the development that is so, that many many different people depend on farmers need agricultural research industrialists need many um things in the from the science departments um and also let's not forget that they basically are relying on college universities to do their workforce training you in fact have a law degree your law um your your law office depended on the university to train the lawyers that would then be in its offices you mentioned that um addressing student loan or, or, or college sort of tuition or whatever uh, is now recognized as infrastructure. Is this, is this part of, is addressing student loans part of President Biden's uh, social infrastructure bill no. that's still pending? Not at all. No, and it not. never was. It no, never was. And, and so, nope, never was. And there, there was discussion early in his term. He was hedging on it. Um, really um during during the primaries um and then he was pressed upon it um in an early town hall early in his presidency um and he hedged a bit and said depends on if you go to harvard or yale and then it was delightful because a bunch of harvard students said well actually harvard is tuition free for i see loan free for students it's loan free for students um so this actually has nothing to do about whether you went to an ivy league school or not um and especially since it does it does tend to be that unfortunately because families of color tend to have less wealth accumulated wealth they have a harder time paying out of pocket for higher education that students of color tend to have to borrow more for the same degrees. And just as importantly, as I've said before, in the, in the first part of the program, women particularly have a hard time paying off these loans at the same, uh, at the same rate because they frequently are leaving the labor force to provide care, either for children or elderly relatives. One uh, question uh, that comes to mind, um... I don't want to talk about my own college days because that was many, many moons ago, but I still remember because I got several scholarships going through scholarship books back then. Internet wasn't available. Now they aged, I, I, I aged myself. So literally they had a booklet, a huge binder that you'd go through and you mm -hmm. flip through. And there were so many scholarships available for uh, women uh, for a different uh, ethnic group and racial groups. Is that 
Is that something that has not increased in volume and availability to keep up with the demand? Well, but there's so I mean the challenge is is that we we do have more applicants of color now, right? That is, Which just is a the, good thing. The, 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 no, it is a no, it's an absolutely wonderful thing. Absolutely. And actually now women are more likely to go to college. Women are more likely to both to go to college and to complete college. But the question is that the the need the de- the need has not kept up with the demand is okay, long so and short that's... of it. And the thing you got no wait, but the thing you got to be really careful about with those scholarships. Mm-hmm. Often they're just doing partly the stuff. They're just doing part of this. So maybe it's a couple thousand here or a couple thousand there. But when There's a drop in the, the cost, bucket, yes, exactly. And so you know one of the interesting things about how we get to the federal um, the the federal tuition assistance programs of the '60s, the most famous is that they had this whole idea of a package of support that you're going to have a financial aid package. And actually, any of your listeners who are actually um, are, are thinking about this for their children um, or maybe for themselves, you will be offered a financial aid package, often with a mix of different things. But that actually comes from the historic tradition of people having to cobble together, maybe work here, maybe a small loan from the university here, maybe you know some money from whatever you've managed to save from there. And it's this longer idea that the kind of free ride that people imagine is very, very rare. Very, very rare. I see. Um, the, going back to my one of my questions is, the the conversation about tuition free that you said has existed for decades. When when was the first time that it was? And I'm not looking for an exact date, just a general sort of uh, time period that it was sort of talked about in a in a more uh, visible sense, maybe in the news. Oh well, and a, and a very visible sense is actually the building of the University of California and the master. Oh wow! Of constructing, yeah, the constructing the entire and the whole idea. And that vision of Clark Kerr of a three-tiered system where you could go from the community college all the way to a UC, right? Mm -hmm. The whole idea, the whole system was supposed to be and was for a time tuition-free. Oh, and that's really interesting. Yeah, no, it's and this is before Senator Sanders. It was long before Senator Sanders. And I, I think for me, the, I actually, that was, um, I mean, if you're, if you're it, I should put it up on my personal website. I'm actually very proud of it. That was my commencement address. Um, uh, when I finished my PhD at the University of California, Santa Barbara, um, was I finished in 2009. We were in the middle of the Great Recession. Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger was really trying to use the Great Recession as, a, as a, an excuse to keep cost cutting at the university, to keep check cutting. And so my commencement address was remembering what the master plan was once and what the vision for that master plan was. Um, and it it's and it was it was and it's it was it was funny for me because Clark Kerr unfortunately is usually remembered as being fired by Ronald Reagan um and also hated by student protesters and one of the great examples of that is mario savio the the leader of the free speech movement at berkeley less than 10 years later he and kerr would find themselves on the same side trying to stop republicans from doing the kind of cuts to the uc system that would require the increase in fees and it is this so a lot of including my graduate advisor nelson lichtenstein but a lot of the faculty in the audience 
were from those Berkeley radical days or were from those student radical days. And they gave me like a standing ovation. I was like, well, you hated Clark <laughs> Kerr back then. <laughs> were there any administrators that were cringe, uh, administrators that were cringing as what you were saying? No, 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 not at all. They actually, it was really sweet because so it was the funniest. This is, I mean, this is getting personal. It's getting away from the book, um, but is, um, I was nominated for to be the commencement speaker because of three things that I did. One is I actually helped um, negotiate the healthcare plan for graduate students for six years when I was at the University of California of Santa Barbara. It's some of the most important work that I ever did um, in terms of making sure that deductibles were affordable, all these things. I helped start um, a center and an undergraduate minor. And then I was also an accomplished historian by the time I finished. And so all these people nominated, but none of those other three people knew that I did, but the administration had known all the work I had been doing for graduate healthcare and making the university more accessible. And so they loved it. They're like, we remember like to think, to remind people what the master plan, what was supposed to have been and the vision for it actually meant a lot to them, especially when they were facing a very hostile governor. This is a great story. Your book, Indentured uh, <laughs> Students, comes from the heart. It's like you, you got well, history I did, in this history. I did, I did dedicate it to the 45 million of us trying to pay off $1.7 yeah. trillion. Dollars. Um, That's who go, it's for. Going back to the book and what you were talking about, sure. uh, the banks. Um, I find it fascinating that banks agreed to lend to students because they don't have any collateral. It's, There's no house. There's it's no the worst. Land. It's the worst financial product of all time. Let's think through why this is the worst financial product. Like how of do all they time. agree? Well, I am, who twisted I, I'll tell you. This? But, I, but, but I do want to make sure that we're thinking through for your listeners. Why is it bad? Please, I'm going to please. give you a loan. I'm going to give you a loan with no... <laughs> I'm going to give you a loan for something I can't repossess. I can't, you cannot have your college degree taken away from you. You can't have those precisely done taken away from you. And then I also could not, even if I could, I can't just sell it to someone else for them to use. And if I took, <laughs> if I could take it away from you, you can never compete for the kind of job that would make it possible for you to pay me back. And the only collateral is that a college dependent on your tuition has said that you are accepted. So you can just see the nightmare this is. And that's the reason why, College, we have on record, we have on record that college universities in the United States, there's earlier examples of this in Europe, have been offering student loans since the early, since the early Republic, since the early 1900s. And it probably was sooner for, but we actually have the documentation for um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the 1900s, early 1900s, or excuse me, the early 1800s, pardon me, the early 1800s. Early 1800s, 1803. wow, okay. Early 18, yeah, so it's a, it's a two, it, we imported the tradition from Europe. We have the, the records of the Dartmouth class of 1803, having a significant number of students actually owing, having taken out loans to finish their degrees from Dartmouth College. Um, but usually because of this, banks- And, and by the way, back then, owing, you could just walk away, presumably. There's no- <gasps> Exactly, exactly. No, this is, no this is, this is the danger of- this yeah. is the danger of it because colleges and universities were the ones generally offering these loans to students as a part of a package of support. You might have some philanthropies. You do have some philanthropic organizations, some charities offering some by the 1920s. And I think that the explosion in student lending in the 1920s just it shows what a risky speculative venture this thing is. So you you do you absolutely um do have that, but they're incredibly hard to collect for that exact reason. Remember, I just want us to think about this. We don't actually have the social security numbers that you and I have to put down now to get any kind of loan. We don't have those until after 1935. 
So this is crazy. And it's also one of the reasons why the New Dealers never even would have thought of a student loan. They did a really interesting um, work study program. And bankers, what finally makes bankers interested in this is a government guarantee that the government will guarantee you repayment on those loans. And that's fundamental to it. It actually starts at the state level. The states start experimenting with some kind of government guarantee first. Um, it's Massachusetts, New York. And then the federal government, it is modeled off the federal mortgage program. And you and I know there's a big difference between a loan for a house, which you can repossess and sell to someone else, and a loan for an education. But they from their perspective in the mid 60s, the housing program seems such an incredible success. We'll just use it as the model for this loan program. And that's before all of the incredible work done by other scholars to show the implicit racism and sexism built from day one into the federal mortgage program. And that's exactly what's happening here with the loan, the student Is, loan program. You know, in the federal and the housing program, federal mortgage program that backstops all the uh, most other mortgages, uh, home mortgages. Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae play a part in that. Mm -hmm. Is there is there a sort of a uh, counterpart to it when it comes to yes. student loans? What the, you mean, mean you mean you mean Sally Mae? Sally okay, Mae? Of, yes, of that is course. exactly right. <laughs> yes. I should have known that. Yes. Sally Mae. Yes. And that's exact. That was exactly. And it was very that they 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 didn't they didn't create the guaranteed student loan program at the same time they created Sally Mae, but they created Sally Mae to make the, the federal student loan program more enticing to bankers. And they literally called it. And the Wall Street Journal is like son of Fannie Mae goes to college, meaning Sally Mae. I was like, I'm not entirely sure why they're making Sally. Usually it's gendered as a female name, but we're just going to go with it. It was yeah. it was the 70s, the early 70s. It was the Wall Street Journal. This is what they're coming <laughs> up with. And um, but that's exactly right. And it was they just they modeled it. They used they thought they looked at the mortgage program and they used it for a model for something completely different. And to me, it just shows you and this is the larger point of the book. So the book is fundamentally about the loan program or so the student the student lending policies in the United States and how we got into this crisis. But it really makes you sit back and think that we usually tell the story of a new deal and you know a new deal, particularly for the white working class. But if you actually look very hard at it, it's actually a bunch of financial products. It's mortgages, it's unemployment insurance. And, and by the new deal, that, you're specifically talking about 1930s FDR and-, and Exactly, and exactly. So Secretary usually celebrated- Perkins. Yeah, usually celebrated at this as this great investment in infrastructure and of course, social yeah. welfare programs. But a lot yeah. of those social welfare programs, a pension, a pension is a financial product. That's mm -hmm. fundamentally what it is. And they they set they set the retirement age at longer at see, at longer than most Americans at the time were living. They could not imagine what we have today where many people are expected to live past 65. And it's just, when you start to think about that, they're basing that entire thing on actuarial tables, similar with this idea that you don't have a guarantee of a job, you just have unemployment insurance and it's limited time frame. And then instead of a federal housing program, we have a federal mortgage program 
where the guarantee was for the bankers, the, fe the guaranteed federal mortgage program, the guarantee was bankers that would be repaid. Very similar with the guaranteed student loan program. It was not a guarantee that college and universities would be supported or that students would have a chance to go to school. It was a guarantee that the bankers would be repaid if they extended the loans for the tuition that students needed and colleges and universities depended on to stay open. Which Changes makes them, one, yeah, which, which makes one question, well, why not just make the colleges free? And well, we're going to talk about this in the next segment. We'll be back after yeah. a short break to talk about other countries' potential for uh, free tuition colleges. We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you! Professor Shermer, I want to discuss the benefits because there are benefits of student loans in our country by dancing around it a bit, uh, sort of get into it indirectly, if you will. So let's start with this question. Are there any thriving capitalist countries or pseudo-capitalist countries with free higher education systems? You mean like Germany and France? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you, you, you answered those questions. And there are pseudo, especially France is pseudo-capitalistic. Um, are there any drawbacks to those? How, how about England, by the way? Does it fall in that category? No, no, no. The, 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 British, uh, the, the British have loans. Um, and they are, they're really interesting because like Australia, so the way that we talk about American student loans, it's a mortgage model. And same with the Canadians, where it's paid back um, on a set rate at a, for a set period of time. Although unlike with, um, unlike with when you and I take out a mortgage for a home, you know, it, it is the, the amount that we're going to pay off includes the mortgage over time. Whereas the, the interest keeps accruing on a student loan. So there's a, there is that difference, but they, the, with the case of Australia and the UK and some other systems as well, you don't, you actually pay it through um, your their tax system, and you only start paying it back when you hit a certain income threshold. Oh, interesting. That, it, is that... a very, it is really interesting. And the, the challenge is, because I get frequently asked by this, um, I'm actually getting ready to do an event with the architect of the Australian loan program, which is going to be it's slightly int intimidating. Um, but uh, I keep oh, asking yeah, all the time, well, why can't... <clears throat> I know. Why can't, why can't we, why can't we go to the Australian model? And my answer is like, it used to be, it was talked about since the 1970s of having the IRS collect student loans. That has been talked about for a long time. Um, and the answer is there was actually bipartisan support for it until the early 1990s. And then it became a massive partisan issue because really when you have um, the very conservative Republican Party, um, and that's that's really what it had become by the, 19, the early 1990s, that is this mantra that we want to really um, 
strip the IRS of its powers, shrink it down. So the IRS budget is, is much smaller than it needs to be in terms of actually keeping up this. So by the time you have the early 1990s, it was an, a Clinton era reform to try and get it collected through the IRS, which had been, had had bipartisan support for 20 years by that point. And it just hits the buzzsaw of the Gingrich um, Republicans in Congress, and you just can't get it through. And I think it's very powerful for us to sit and think in, about now, if that was actually the case where so many people who are struggling to repay right now, if you had it in the IRS where they hadn't hit that threshold where it could be collected that way, because a lot of the original um, banks that had really gotten fat off of the guaranteed student loan program, what they do now is service the student loans held by the federal government. So they're making money on servicing these loans. But if you had just done it to the IRS, it would have cut the cost of actually the cost of this loan program, not just for the borrowers themselves, but actually for the federal government to administer it, to put it within the purview of the IRS and not have to pay these banks that had become powerful off of it to collect that debt for the federal government. What if, let's say, a certain person, um, for the sake for the sake of argument, would decide that okay, I, I don't really want to work. You know, I, I got this PhD in investment banking, whatever, and and, and biotech, and I just really want to go and teach surfing lessons somewhere, which is great. But you're not going to make that much money, so. What do you do in that case? If we base that on income, they accumulate all this loan, but then they decide that uh, they don't want to pay it. So I could see. Can I ask you? People are always have these sort of hypotheticals. I have yet to no, but I have yet to meet the person who has gotten an investment banking degree and it says like, "Well, now I'm going to surf." Now, this the interesting question <laughs> would be like, if we actually, if we actually shift, and if and I believe this is also, um, don't, don't quote me on this listeners. I believe this is also run into a problem. The efforts to try and pay for the Biden infrastructure um, proposals was going to actually be trying to have a better wealth tax, which dealt with it. Cause in theory, if you have some former investment banker hanging, but the investment banker would have had to have made the money back to pay back the student loans already. Right. Cause this person has gotten a, a very expensive MBA then they would need, they would have to presumably have worked for, as an MBA for a while and the government would have recouped that money. They would have figured out how much they could afford to pay back that based on their income. I don't think that it would actually, that hypothetical actually works. I mean, we have all these mythos. There are so many historians who have obliterated the mythos of the welfare queen, which was a phantom that Ronald Reagan invented that never actually existed. And the, and the example that you bring up about investment bankers and their MBAs, uh, I know in the early years of their um, apprenticeship as investment bankers, they, they don't make that much money. But still, comparatively, it's a lot more yeah. than, let's say, a social worker. Remember the article, for yeah. example, I share with you for yeah. about the US, USC case. Um, going back to uh, France. Well, do you, you want to go back to the Germany and the France question? So the one exactly, thing I will tell yeah. you this because I've talked to my... My colleagues in Germany and France and their point of their perspective is their students, because um, I actually wrote one of the chapters of the loan book in, in Germany at a university, their perspective is that so many of their students, you know, are spending so much time because 
trying to work these part-time jobs to be able to afford, even though they're not having a tuition, they still have to eat. And I think that that's a, that is a fair point that it, they, this fantasy of not having tuition, we forget that one of the sacrifices it's making when you decide to go to college is you're removing yourself, part of your, your waking hours from working to actually make the money you need for basic needs. And so this is this is an aspect from them, from the point of view of my friends, French colleagues, because um, I've also done work in France, um, is they feel very frustrated that they don't have the sort of technology that we might have in an American university or, or, or something like that, you know, as, as readily available. The upgrades are slower and all this other kind of stuff. But my 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 response to that is always there is such a wide variety in what my friend calls the American higher education ecosystem. There is a Harvard and there is a Yale, but there's also community colleges out there, like the one, oh gosh, about a 15, 20 minute walk from my house here in Chicago, which desperately needs more support for basic needs of its students in terms of technology. So you can't really compare it in the same way that this reliance on lending has not given the equal support where a community college is going to be able to offer more um, more spaces for people who need it than the Ivy League institutions, which are unfortunately the face of American higher education. Those wealthy institutions are kind of the exception that proves the rule. Does a free university system, I'm going back again to France and Germany. Sure. Is it, how do I ask this question? Are are free university systems exclusive ver, as opposed to American system, well, uh, you, which is you have inclusive? To, you, you, oh, American higher education is inclusive. Interesting. No, what I mean is, um, um, is, is um, you know, you hear about uh, systems in, in uh, for example, Germany, in which uh, some somewhere along high school, kids are put in different educational paths that lead to higher education. Same with France. Same with France. Yeah, and others exactly. are put into um, uh, sort of paths that lead them to apprenticeship and they go to right. free or, universities. We, we sort of don't have, we or, don't have or, that in America, or, right? Yeah, but the question is like, but my question though is because from an American perspective, there is a, and it's a real shame, um, there's a looking down on vocational trades and partly is the assumption that they're not going to make enough money. But it, my a friend, my my the professor who taught me legal history and was training me in legal history, her last class this semester was always do not go to law school. And she pointed out with the realities of a six minute hour, <laughs> with the realities of a six minute hour, that actually a really a, a, a good job at a, at a as a as a plumber could actually pay a little bit more with the realities of how you actually have to clock your time as a lawyer, which I found quite fascinating. And also, I think to be honest too, is like the the vast differences in the pay for being, for example, um, uh, you know a, a a real estate attorney as opposed to a high profile and, you know, uh, a more high profile um, law, law, legal profession, that this is something to think about. But the thing is, is that I think that the challenge right now is the push is the pathway to having a chance at, and it's not a guarantee, the chance of the kind of well-paying job that offers some kind of economic security in this country is seen as needing a college degree just to um, compete. But what if there ha there has there would there would be like there is in other countries that you have those basic supports where those vocational jobs could offer the kind of 
middle-class lifestyle at home that many people that basic stability that they once did and i think that that's a function that we have to talk about that it, it, you you should be able to make a good life at a trade job right and i think that that really gets back to these this, these larger questions we've been asking higher education to solve the issue of underpayment for basic work and making sure because so many of our basic benefits are tied to our place of employment that one of the reasons to have to go get the college degree to compete for that well-paying job was the hope that you would have decent health insurance as opposed to freeing that from where your employer as opposed to a basic right going back to my question of whether sure. europe is exclusive but by europe i mean just germany and france um the question still stands uh, because French and German universities are free. Do they also weed out candidates early on? So let's say at 26, 32, you decide to go to college and, you know, you sort of missed a boat. Is, am I, do I have the correct perception? My understanding is that there are opportunities for continuing education. And I think that that this is where I am not, I am not the expert on exactly on, on Germany and France, except for the fact that I knew that undergraduates have different options. People have different pathways to jobs that will enable them to have a well-supported life, that they won't have to worry about the healthcare, that they will be have, for example, vacation days that we technically have, depending on the job you have in this country, though mm -hmm. many people don't actually take them. And the question is like, it is true when I've been on in French and German universities, the um, student body has looked to be roughly the same age in the United States, but I do believe that there are, are opportunities to go and study more. And my question is, why do we always assume that this is only the purview of the young? Also in this country, the cost as well as the time commitments it takes to pursue a bachelor's degree in this country, it makes it also hard for people to go back to college at different points in their life, particularly if they have children or they're providing elder care. Compared to other countries, is a larger proportion of americans enjoying higher education no so we this is the challenge you see i'm, I'm you, going back to that question again no yeah. i understand but so so we're sixth now in terms of the number of college graduates number um, or percentage per capita per capita per capita we're per capita. Sixth. um so we're um we're behind the uk um israel japan canada actually is number one and i think the thing that's important to keep in mind about this is it usually the usual line was the American embrace with the way that it, it did it in terms of focusing on the tuition assistance and all these things initially enabled the expansion of mass higher education much faster. But the thing is, if it's all built for the most part on a loan program and we have it, we don't have just a student debt crisis. We have a college financing crisis. There are predictions that we might lose anywhere from 25 to 50% of the college and universities that we have in this country within the next decade. Wow. And so if you're losing that basic infrastructure because so much of it is built on a really terrible financial product, this is something that we have to think about in terms of actually being able to remain globally competitive because the real um, the real source of wealth right now is in the the so-called knowledge industries like law like like yeah. your, your profession and I think that that's the thing that we have to think about is that we're not investing because the there was um, there was an effort to have genuinely free community college across the country um, in the infra the Biden infrastructure plans that's gone 
it got, got caught. But even that entry into having it could have meant a lot. And the nice thing about a community college is that by its very structure and its very place, it does make it accessible to people beyond 18 to 22. Because again, why are we assuming, especially in a labor market where people are changing careers, usually less within seven years these days, why are we assuming that education is only going to be, continued education should only be at this one specific aspect of our time in your life? Let's take a break here. Uh, I'll let that question uh, linger. So stay with me and Professor Shermer as we get into the perspective. Do you ever wonder what our distinguished experts look like? How our guests express themselves as they explain the history behind news? Well, you can put a face to their voices by watching videos of our podcast. Just follow us on your favorite social media platform by clicking their links in the detailed caption of this episode. And as an added bonus, you get to see Adele, the host of the Peel.News. Most times he looks excited, sometimes shocked, other times... Well, I'll let you find out for yourself. Professor Shermer, we talked about student loans in the last three segments. So I'll go back to something that's very basic. Do you think America's higher education system should be free? I think at the very least, the public part of it. The public universities, the public colleges, they should be free. And let me actually dial back. So UC Berkeley should be free, but USC can stay private. Exactly. Because one of the interesting things, and I'm going to like dial back, I'm talking about the New Deal. I'm a historian. I can't help it. One of the interesting ideas, because you got to think about the New Dealers as just trying to tinker with the labor market, thinking about, you know, the market, They, they really were working in a capitalist framework is they had this idea of public competitors. And public, public competitors? Com- other public competitors. So one of their great public <clears throat> competitors was actually this series of dams and waterways and electrical stations known as the Tennessee Valley Authority. And it yep. literally offered an extraordinarily cheap source of electricity, the public competitor that got those private utilities across the country, not just in the South, to lower their rates so more and more people could finally have turned lights on. And I, I have to say, I have to be honest, I think that there's such an amazing way to think about that now with the potential for a real investment in public broadband, if we could get it, to actually start lowering the cost of access to the internet. But let's get back to the, the public competitor. So Obamacare originally was supposed to have a public option, which is also otherwise known as a public competitor. It was supposed to be a public option to compete in those healthcare exchanges. But if we have genuine a genuinely free public option, it is a public competitor that might do a lot to rein in the costs of the private colleges and universities. And that's what's really exciting and interesting about, for example, the College for All Act, which could actually make public college universities genuinely tuition free. And then all of a sudden, when you have that public competitor and the flagship public universities, like um, the one you went to, Irvine, it's a great, uh, yeah. a, a great university. I went to Santa Barbara. These are great schools. You have those 
public competitors, it might help start rating in the cost of the private options. And I think that that's really intriguing. Do you think if these public uh, universities, and some of them are ranked top 50, top 100, they're great schools, uh, both UCSB and UC Irvine are among the top uh, 100. Uh, if, If they change to tuition for do you think that will compromise the quality of education and i bring this up because earlier you were talking about some of the complaints uh, out of france that they were saying they don't have the technology that american universities have well and the way that i I think it's an important uh, it's an important uh, question and i my the way that the bill is being constructed it is all contingent actually on having the kind of genuine investment needed to actually make it possible to keep the quality of higher education there. And so that is, you're absolutely right. That is the key that it has to come the the ability to make them tuition free has got to come with a kind of state and federal investment to genuinely make that real and to not um, suffer the quality because we all benefit from having a more educated population um, period that is that is long and we also we benefit from the research done we would not have these covid vaccines were it not for the partnerships for example in the question of astrazeneca that's the university of oxford and the pharmaceutical company that's what makes it possible and it always has um, made it possible but but even if we want to do ideally it would be the college for all act that that public computer or the four-year universities but even i have to say and even if it had been possible to get the free community college, if you think about that, that could have halved the cost of higher education to have the first two years free at a public community college. And there are excellent community colleges in California, really Mm -hmm. excellent ones. And then all of a sudden that halves the cost, but it also puts pressure on the four-year colleges and universities. It puts a pressure on their overall cost that could have also been beneficial as well. How does that put pressure um, on them? Oh, because you could, you could, for example, instead of doing four years at the University of Irvine, you can go to a two-year, and then what you have to do if you're an Irvine administrator, you need, I'll use the administrative forward for it, you need those butts and seats. Mm. So you have to start thinking about and allocating the resources for to be competitive in order to actually attract the students that you need. So it's exactly that downward pressure. And for those, and I'm using your words now, those butts in, in, in seats, students would still have to take some sort of loan for their cost of living, right? Even if the tuition is free. Or, and this, and it, it gets, the question becomes in terms of actually what, where you live, um, because is it possible in California? I guess it depends on where you are in California. Well, just, um, is is it possible to make enough working part-time so you still have the time to study in order to avoid the student loan? I'm not sure. We also have the Pell Grant program that's for mm-hmm. low-income students. Yeah. And so that can meet part of it. And it, it all depends on in our magical land where we actually got the two-year community colleges <laughs> to actually see what that had looked at. But sadly, um, that doesn't seem to be on the table anymore. No, it doesn't. Um, no. Professor Shermer, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about student loan, what would that be? Oh, gosh, that the guarantee was for the bankers, not the students <laughs> or the schools. <laughs> 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 the way that I talk, when I, 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 was, I was like, and, and the house, it comes down to it. This was a financial product. It was not the investment in higher education that is usually talked about in college textbooks. It was it was a financial product 
and the house always wins in Vegas and outside Vegas, the bankers got the guarantee and they are the ones that continue to be servicing the loans for the federal government and still making money off of this industry. And to better understand that history, uh, get Professor Shermer's book, Indentured Students. And I'll have a link for that in the uh, caption, uh, detailed caption of this episode. Uh, Professor Shermer, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the News anytime. I love it too. Uh, thank you. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the Peel.news.